Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I recently renewed my teaching license for another five years. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I have renewed my focus on today's work with today's students. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Cast Iron Oatmeal Brown from Four Hands Brewing Company. I didn't know brown was a, was a type of beer. Well, it's probably an ale. That makes sense to me. It doesn't say it on the can, so I would hate to be presumptuous. Right, but here we are presuming. Well, um, that's going to come up later. <laughs> it smells good. Yeah, I like, uh, I like brown beer a lot, so uh, I'll admit... I was excited to buy this one at your expense. I think we'll be fine. <laughs> what are we doing today, amigo? We learn about third culture kids, students who spent portions of their lives living immersed in multiple cultures. We'll discuss how to leverage their strengths and support them in their struggles. Later, we'll read about Statway, a redesigned program that helps students engage in productive struggle and earn collegiate math credit faster and more consistently than a typical remedial program. Finally, we read from a mixed bag of listener mail that prompts us to think more about past discussions on feedback and change initiatives. Let's get started. I'm pleased to share that our first segment this month actually comes from one of my students uh, who she was doing a project in our class and she really wanted to discuss this topic of third culture kids. And I said, ooh, maybe I can help. Like, I'll just do my best. I don't know very much about that topic, but I'm really eager to learn more. And so uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Kat, for pointing this out to me because I am I am happy to have the opportunity to discuss third culture kids growing up with mobility and cross-cultural transitions. And this paper was by Quan, uh, published in Diaspora, Indigenous, and Minority Education. Did you know anything about third culture kids? No, no. When uh, I saw the title, third culture kids, I was like, well, this sounds interesting. And they go, you know, right into the uh, abbreviation TCKs. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what we're talking about yet. Uh, but it's, you know, once they start painting the picture, it's not a complicated concept. Uh, and of course, this is the reality of some of the personal narratives of uh, our students and people around the world. Uh, it's, uh, I guess in a nutshell, it is a kid, a kid who's going to school, but has a family with what they described as high mobility. So it's not unusual for them to uh, spend, in fact, I think they defined it with as a kid who spends at least three years growing up and going to school in a nation other than the one that issued them a passport. Uh, yeah, that was how they operationalized it for the study. Conceptually, third culture refers to um, a child who whose parents have a culture, culture number one, if we're going to count them, and then they move to a different culture, culture number two. Um, and that that child, because they feel a connection and are being raised with aspects of their parents' culture number one, and are also experiencing the environmental impacts of culture number two, develop their own uh, different cultural identity and cultural ruining, uh, which is a third culture in that sort of um, triangle of relationships. And so third culture is a reference that it is meaningfully different 
from the original uh, culture of um, their parents and their country of origin, and it is different from their experience of their current environment, which is different uh, also. So third culture is their own unique experience as a result of all that moving. So when I'm looking at this study, I'm thinking it's very different than uh, the studies that we usually read. Uh, it is very um, uh, anecdotal. Uh, it's it's an interview based. It's trying to find uh, common themes and experiences amongst third culture kids. It seems like there's not a lot of research or resources about this topic out there. And so we're in the early stages of generating data, kind of like a let's decide what data on this topic might look like or be pertinent about. And so uh, they interviewed six people about ideas regarding their identity, sense of belonging, relationships, competencies, and uh, how those things affect their adult lives. Yeah, and so something that I was reading in this narrative, so this is a quali this was qualitative work done in the narrative tradition of qualitative researchers. What I kind of read as uh, Quan's um, intention with all of that discussion was that some of this research has been around for a couple of decades. It's not brand new, but that a lot of the research prior has been quantitative and kind of done um, above or separate from the folks who are experiencing this phenomenon. And so really saying we need to look at the actual experience and perspective of adults who grew up as third culture kids um, to find out what do they think about all of this? What are they experiencing as they go through this? How do they look back on it now um, and see how that how that is consistent or inconsistent with how we look at it from the outside? If I'm not a TCK, if I don't come from a TCK background, um, is what I'm predicting to be true actually consistent with what they feel and experience? And I think that's meaningful because they because there are some some disconnects. There's some disagreement that they found. So they talked to people. They talked to people. That's what they did. They interviewed them and they said, hey, what's your story? And they asked them uh, questions centered on a couple of things. And one of the ones was about, hey, where are you from? Kind of a loaded question. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got the complex answer that you might expect. When pressed, TCKs have a difficult time of identifying a single home culture. They like to identify with the place where they currently live, but there are pressures and complications in doing so in doing so because they are perceived differently from the 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 local culture uh, participants they may identify with cultural practices that are not typical of their parents culture of origin so what they found is that as they mature the adult uh, third culture kids identify themselves more as having a global identity and they are proud of that identity and it uh, provides them with a greater sense of stability uh, than has been suggested in prior research on this topic. They used a phrase in the middle that I liked and that I want to incorporate into my own vocabulary. I'm going to attempt to say this out loud as syncretic identity. Mm. That's how that's how I pronounce it. Have you ever used that word before? I, no. Uh, which basically is a hybrid, a hybrid identity, uh, something that is distinct from both either of their either of the other cultures that they experienced. And I think that's a pretty good um, description. There was a quote on that topic that I found gave a lot of meaning to that. You know, this sort of the high level academic language means something to me academically. But then hearing a quote um, from one of their participants kind of kind of drove it home for me. Um, this person, she identifies most with Ecuador as being her home country as they defined it, um, even though her country of origin for her parents is in Asia. And so she gave the quote that she said, I am Latina, I identify as Latina, but I look Asian. And so 
there are, it is not uncommon for people to struggle, to struggle with that claim. Um, and that makes sense to me. That makes sense. I can even feel in myself, I can remember instances where I've, I've struggled to interpret seeing somebody make that kind of, to make that kind of identification that I wasn't expecting. And I have felt in myself, uh, some tension that I, that, oh, that is, that's what that feels like on that side. on, on somebody who's trying to work through that difficulty because that sentence makes sense to me. Like if you identify as Latina because that's where you grew up, that makes sense to me. Gosh, I think this is a little complicated, right? So we started uh, 1500s, uh, we started the birth of globalization as we started shipping people all over the, around the world for all kinds of reasons. And uh, we are still, that, that dispersion of humanity and culture is still happening today. We have not homogenized ourselves culturally and phenotypically across the planet. And so associations between sort of uh, local phenotypic patterns, as in local traits, physiological traits of people and the culture associated with those locations, we are still living in a world where that exists. So this individual, what was her name? What was her, do we know her a name? Pseudonym? I, a pseudonym? I didn't write it down. So this TCK is saying sh part of her experience is dealing with that tension that she is one of these people who has been, her physiological traits have been displanted and she has been raised with the, it richly in this uh, local cultural experience that she embraces. That means that when people look at her, they make assumptions about her based on her phenotypic traits. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's predictable. Happens. It's right. a predictable thing. And, uh, you know, being aware that those narratives exist can help us be more sensitive uh, when we are um, interacting with people who are third culture kids. Mm -hmm. We can be aware of that in our classrooms. Yeah, being mindful of those assumptions, I think is especially important because we don't always know that we're making them. I don't always have the opportunity for, if I make an assumption, I see somebody who who looks like they are from one culture and I make an assumption that they are, they don't always correct me. I don't always know that I've been wrong. Right. And so being mindful of that can seem routine, can seem tedious, but it's not tedious to these people because to some folks, you will be wrong. You said that, I hadn't thought this far into it, but you were saying the students don't always volunteer this information. Um, and they definitely won't if you do not ask. Mm -hmm. If you ask, they might. If you ask them to write about themselves at the beginning of the year, they might tell you they grew up in two other places, right? And then they can be put on your radar. And you can say, okay, this is a, 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 a third culture circumstance that I can be aware of and navigate with sensitivity. Yeah, which is good. That, that would be good. Yeah. Do we, do we want to discuss the experience of, of the TCKs when they're kids versus when they're adults, because that multicultural sense of belonging is considered a source of stability and an asset in the adults, but it's also a complication when they are a kid because they, they do have tension developing a concrete sense of identity as they are interacting with other students. Yeah, and I think that's important because this paper is about looking at the the results of these experiences as a, in adults, as but that's not our concern, right? Our primary concern is when they are still Ks, right? When they're still right. kids. And so I think 
trying to figure out what does this mean if I have students who um, have more trouble dealing with rootlessness is a word that they, that got used in the paper a couple of times where I'm from several different places. I haven't yet crystallized my sense of global citizenship. And so I just, I'm just dealing with this isolation of I'm, I don't have a connection to this place the same way that a lot of my peers do. And so, and that has some constant social consequences as they, especially there was a, a reference to um, it's harder for them to form deep, uh, extensive friendships yeah. and because friendships take time and you don't have as much time when you're moving around as much. And that's just a consequence of what that, how that phenomenon works. What does that mean for me as an educator is ultimately where we're going with this. So, well, you know, uh, there is a teacher should. I agree. I think there's a clear teacher should. Uh, well, they just flat out said in the discussion regarding this particular issue, teachers should connect third culture kids with each other. It's the fourth of four themes that they intentionally lay out as being what they took from their from their data collection. And the fourth one is the establishment of a third culture enclave is the word that they used, um, which basically means that they, they really strongly identify and can build connections with other folks with similar experiences. That makes sense with what we know about how friendships form. And so helping facilitate that process of identifying each other, finding others with similar experiences and similar values uh, so that they can build those relationships to establish a sense of being is what we should do in the educational system. Yeah, it's, it's this outgrowth of that multi-local sense of belonging. If they identify not as Korean or British or from the United States, but in, instead a global citizen with a global identity, they resonate with other people who uh, champion that same identity. Mm -hmm. So being able to find others who think of themselves and their place in the world similarly is a priority for adult TCKs. As teachers, we can help facilitate that adult priority by giving them opportunities to practice sharing that identity when they are students in our classroom and in our schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because something that was laid out explicitly in this paper is that their sense of belonging and sense of place comes from their relationships, their interpersonal connections, rather than their geography. That's something that's particularly important to them, according to what we've read here. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's actually some like hidden themes of growth requires struggle in this. So they... They get transplanted to another culture. They have language issues, so they have communication issues. So it's very hard for them to develop swift friends quickly because they may not even have the same lexicon, let alone um, syntax, to be able to understand the students right away. So they've got to work with language before they can work with relationships. And then they've got to work with adjusting to different cultural practices and sensitivities before they can work with relationships. And so their sense of belonging and relationship building requires them to put in a lot of effort in these other competencies and skills. And one of the other uh, patterns that they illustrated is that when they're kids, this is very, very stressful to them. But then as adults, their multilingual competencies and cultural understandings become incredible skills that they can leverage to great success in a continually globalizing culture. So this paper lays that out of the, and I love that you mentioned growth requires struggle. And because I made a similar note in, in my notes, uh, we get good at what we practice, yeah. even relocation it's stressful and it's hard and it, it comes with a cost. 
But then when they're good at it, it's a it's an asset. It's something they can they can do well. And so we see that uh, TCKs, at least in some of the previous literature they cited, they're more likely to earn a bachelor's degree by a considerable margin, like by, by a factor of four. Uh, they're more likely to show an interest in global politics and, and foreign language. And so um, what's interesting is the narratives in this set of six individuals shows that they are consistently leveraging those abilities in global roles. That may be education for students who are from different parts of the world. That might be a multinational corporation. There, there are different ways that they can implement those skills, although something to consider and something that they call for in the in future research is this is qualitative work. So we need to really be careful about overgeneralizing from this very small sample into, they're not, they're, their purpose is not to speak for all TCKs. Uh, so something that I think is worth bearing in mind is a lot of the context for some of the previous TCK work is international schools has been one place where they've done a lot of studies on this kind of thing, because that's where TCKs are. So we go there to study them. But also that comes with the consequence of that's a setting where we generally see a higher baseline SES than just the background population writ large. I sort of have a summary teacher should set of statements. Uh, we've already mentioned connecting them with each other, but also uh, they may benefit fit by making clear the value of their transnational experience, which will pay dividends as adults because they, they're going through these struggles now. They may not recognize there can be dividends for this experience. Uh, recognizing the value of their unique perspective for your classroom and then responding to their experiences when you are making classroom decisions. Which is ultimately, back to Shannon Ralph's wisdom, know your students. Uh-huh. It's, basically, it's, it's basically what the last three points come to. Know your students. Back in episode 32, we read a paper about growth mindset. The lead author, Dr. Yeager, was that right? Yeah. He, uh, we made contact with him and he responded uh, by uh, saying that he appreciated our discussion about productive struggle. And though the paper we talked about in 32 wasn't really focused on that, he has read some other papers that were, and he suggested that to us. And so we read it. That paper was assessing the first two years effectiveness of Statway, a multi-level model with propensity score matching. And though that title sure is riveting, um, it doesn't exactly tell us what's going on. That was uh, written by Yamada and Brick uh, and was published in the Community College Review. So what was that paper actually exploring, Mr. Ralph? So Statway is a different approach to doing early math experiences in undergraduate settings. So basically the premise is there are too many instances of students coming into a university setting who are underprepared for mathematics and have to take remedial math courses, multiple semesters worth of early remedial math, not even college level math, to become eligible for earning college level math credit. And that for too many students, that is a barrier to participation in university education full stop. Um, they leave the university entirely or it takes them too long. They can't get into they can't get into the majors they want to do. Just this is kind of a big deal problem at the university level. And that's true. <laughs> that's definitely still going on across many universities. So they developed this Statway approach, which is a new way to try and help those students become ready for university level mathematics work 
faster and more effectively by leveraging what we think we know about the ways to productively struggle with mathematics content in preparation for university math. And so it's a redesigned program. One of the ways that the Statway program is different than traditional programs is that instead of having students just enroll in their remedial math classes semester after semester after semester, they retailer a one-year course of study that integrates the remedial math skills with the development of statistics practices. They can be learning the college-level math while practicing the remedial skills necessary to support that math. And so what they did is they looked at groups of students who were taking the Statway course, and they were looking at groups of students who were taking the traditional course through remedial math semesters and comparing how many of them successfully earned that collegiate level math credit and how many of them afterwards continue to uh, participate and earn collegiate credit. And so I think what I think I wanted to spend my time on in this paper was they laid out, you know, there are six major pieces and how they're driving change when they designed this course. And a lot of those pieces break into even more subsets of theoretical framework for how they're doing it. And I don't want to get into all of those details, but there are a few of those pieces that I think we could use when we're trying to reconsider an approach to a science or math or an English or some other course, whether it be at the university or the K-12 level. Um, one of them was they explicitly said there are a couple of educational best practices that we want to emphasize when we plan our course material for uh, the Statway experiences day over day and week over week. And the very first one, I got so excited to see it, uh, was an emphasis on productive struggle, which really what they're describing is problem-based instruction. And that made me feel really good because I love problem-based instruction. The Statway program emphasized introducing each new concept with a rich problem that engages students thinking and it, it encourages them to struggle to understand this problem, this contextualized, complicated, complicated piece of math work. And I think that that is a meaningful change from a lot of situations where we get these clean, sterile, precisely defined uh, mathematics problem sets. And so they said, here is a big, rich problem, struggle with it. And then throughout that whole process, they're emphasizing what are the connections between concepts? How does this relate to other material we've already learned, other material that we're going to learn later? And then we're going to deliberately practice putting all of that into place to solve these big, rich problems. And that, that resonates with the way that I want to run a classroom. That sounds a lot more compelling and, a lot, frankly, a lot, more, a lot more interesting than just working through isolated pieces of problems. Presenting students a problem that they that is not quite in their current reach, but showing them and providing the scaffolding and directions that they need to stretch a little farther and take a few more steps to put the problem within their reach is what's driving the application of concepts over the learning of procedures and giving the opportunity for meaningful practice as opposed to rote procedure recreation which is what is contributing to a more robust and applicable learning that is allowing them to more quickly develop an understanding of statistics. Mm -hmm. It pairs really well with uh, another study that um, one of my former colleagues, one of your current colleagues, uh, sent me a couple of weeks ago about um, a big, big time analysis of students in calculus at um, one of the military academies and looking at how their performance in calculus paired with their performance in downstream math coursework, 
where if the original instructors spend time explicitly making connections and exploring applications of material, um, they, they may not see the bumps in performance on standardized tests right here, right now, but their downstream performance on future coursework is higher is higher compared to if I'm just teaching to what are the t skills and problems they have to solve right here, right now. And so I think that, that that dovetails really well here because in this kind of a program, the purpose of the program is help them be successful in college math, which is later. So if we want that, we need to make these sorts of connections and uh, develop a sort of applicability for those skills. And that is what they found, that the students who had uh, the Statway experience earned more subsequent college credit than those who did not. Yeah, a lot more often, right? It was something- 36% was the sort of- uh, Improvement, right? Yeah. So over half of the Statway students in these samples earned college credit versus about 15% right. of students in the existing coursework structure earned college credit eventually. So that jump is huge because that is a completely unacceptable number. The, the, in the teens, earning college credit, that can't be, that can't be. And these are community college students. These are community college students and a large portion of the participants in these studies were uh, demographics that have um, experienced, a, I guess, we're gonna, I'm gonna use the word achievement gap, for collegiate mathematics. Over 60% of the cohorts were female, over half were minorities, two thirds were from families with mothers who did not have collegiate degrees. So these are the demographics that are traditionally not well served in higher level mathematics. Uh, and this approach dramatically increased the success of these students. Another thing that they emphasized was uh, networked improvement communities. It was their sixth driver of change, a, a, a NIC NIC. Uh, and you may, if you're listening really closely, you may remember that we mentioned that in our discussion with Dr. Beth Holland back in 026 as another framework that's uh, similar to a PLC in some ways, but different in meaningful ways. Um, and I think that's a thing that's worth emphasizing is if you're going to have instructors trying to pursue this sort of interconnected instruction, um, especially when you compare it to some of the findings from that other study I mentioned a moment ago, is experienced instructors, it's harder, and experienced instructors can do it more effectively. So you've got to build this network uh, with a clearly defined goal so that those educators can collaborate and can brainstorm and can feedback e each other, can iterate quick, quickly and improve their processes, because this is hard. So you've got to put a framework in place so that the instructors can reflect and get better over time because they will not be perfect the first time out. So I really appreciated seeing that in their drivers of change is you've got to put a network in place. You've got to support a network for the professionals who are trying to do this work. So let's say I'm convinced um, as I'm trying to identify what is the takeaway home from this takeaway message from this, uh, this paper. Is it community college should adopt way the Carnegie Math Pathways Statway curriculum? Is that what I should take away from this? I mean, if what you're doing is something like how they described their previous coursework with multiple remedial courses and alarmingly low percentages of students earning math credit, then yes, you should because this is substantially better than that. I see. Uh, so I think in your high school classroom, if you're not using problem-based instruction, uh, what are you using and why are you doing it? If it's highly sterile, highly isolated problems as you march through a textbook, then yeah, I, I think you ought to consider 
what it might look like to design one one problem based one problem based activity and devote several days to it and see how it goes and reflect on reflect on what worked and what didn't and talk with other colleagues who have done problem based instruction and hear how they've done things differently and whether that might make your next iteration better. Um, if you do a lot of problem-based instruction, then I think the next thing is to think about how are you getting plugged into this network uh, of network of practice so that you can see how you can dialogue and share ideas and better better leverage the techniques in your classroom. Uh, upon reflecting, as I was listening to you and thinking of my own things, uh, I think another thing that I recognize from this is that because it's problem-based, it's inherently not a linearly curricul a linearly delivered curriculum because students will need different parts of math from different you know at different levels of complexity all interacting to be able to create the solution to this particular larger problems and you may have many smaller solutions that require many different math disciplines so it involves consistent cyclical progress through the curriculum as we've got this higher math that we're trying to get to, but we have to review and relearn and repractice the supporting math components to get there. And it you cycle back and forth between the higher math and the lower math and the higher math and the lower math so that we're responding to the students and their needs and the lessons they need at the time as they develop competency toward this larger problem goal. Mm -hmm. So being flexible in the directions that you take your class in response to student needs, so you give them the lessons they need at the time that they need them, all serving progress toward a larger goal. Oh, well, not just being flexible for yourself, but also demanding flexibility for your colleagues who are pursuing similar goals. Mm. So if we're doing this differently and I expect to be able to be responsive to my students, I should equally expect and insist that each of my colleagues can exercise similar flexibility. And so this network of collaboration, this networked improvement community is about discussing those choices and discussing those observations. So we can be reflective as you suggest, but demanding that we do not impose upon each other because that would then limit or undermine our ability to be responsive, which is what good PBI should be. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Yeager, for bringing this paper to our attention. I agree. This is a great example of what it might look like to implement uh, a philosophy of productive struggle. And as one final note, he also suggested a beer that we should try. This is a flavor country from Austin Beer Works. And I said that I'd do my very best to get it so that we could try it. And I failed. I, did, I was not able to get it. So I'm sorry. I promise you I tried. Couldn't do it. Uh, so thank you for that response and helping us further improve our ability to think about what using a growth mindset to pursue productive struggle might look like. Make better mistakes. We had a lot of stuff. We had a lot of stuff that popped up. Yeah. The, our third segment, I am coining and christening right now. Our third segment is mixed bag because we got all sorts of stuff that we need to address from you listeners. Uh, Dr. Yeager sent us something that we read. We also had several other responses. I got a letter from Olivia Brinkmeyer, a listener in response to episode 32 uh, about feedback. Uh, there was a paper exploring 
how much feedback should you give a student when they've made a math error? Uh, and uh, her, her letter discussed how she's experiencing receiving feedback as an adult, starting a new career, starting a new trade. She is becoming a carpenter and she's uh, found some resonance in that episode because when she is told not to do something, which is essentially what we tell students when we put a big X on their paper, this was wrong, don't do this, that may not be enough to prevent that student or her in her new situation from making that mistake in the future. Whereas a rationale and an explanation, fuller, richer feedback about the phenomenon can prevent her from making a mistake like cutting a board the wrong way. In her paper, she asked some really big teacher questions. She asked some big questions. And one of them was, how much is a teacher's responsibility and how much is up to home life? She asked this question because in her school experience, she was told these were wrong, go home and figure it out. And in her experience, it was working with her parents or private tutors that she actually did the work of developing the reasoning to fix the problem before she could go back to school. She follows this up with, is that a big question all teachers grapple with? Um, what do I think about that? Um, I'm going to actually, I'm going to answer that by actually looking at one of the other questions she sends a little further down on that, in that paper, where she asks, um, how would you define teaching? And I imagine my job as a teacher who does teaching is to promote student progress. I think that's what, that's what I'm there to do. So they can make some, some increment of progress without me. My job is to help them make more progress as much as possible in the same unit of time and for the same, the same amount of investment by providing resources, by providing prompting, by providing experiences they may not be able to provide for themselves, whatever. So if I'm thinking about feedback, my job is what feedback can I give them to help them continue making progress? Uh, I think it's entirely fine to have an expectation that students seek their source of progress on their own. I think that that is generally fine as framed. Um, to expect them to get it from any single one place starts to bump up against some of the ideas we talked about in our UDL discussion last month, where if I lean on any single source, that is always going to have some problems for some students for some really good reasons. So I think it's my job to, if, if you want to get help from your parents or from a tutor, that's fine. I need to make sure that I have options in place for students who can't get help from their parents or a tutor for any number of good reasons. And so I need to make sure they have available other resources. And there are all sorts of other ways that I could, that I could make that available. So how much of it is home life specifically? I think I'm really unwilling to require any of it to be home life as defined. It's fine that they get help from home life, but I need to make sure that there are options available so that students who can't, won't, don't want to get help from parents or a tutor, that they have other options available so they also can make progress. So I liked what you said about teaching is helping students progress, helping students develop, helping students pursue cognitive growth, skill growth. Well, we, you and I have talked about, you know, what's that core drive that we believe is the fundamental um, reason to be for public education, and that is to develop responsible, effective citizens. And so 
that development to grow doesn't necessarily have to stop at, you know, mathematical skills or cognitive development. There are social responsibilities and awareness and interactions that also matter. So as a teacher, all of those things are important to me. And I'm looking for opportunities to help my students develop all of those. And helping a student solve the problem of what work do they need to do to help themselves based on their current circumstances is important. And I think that pairs with what you were saying, because not all of them are going to be able to have that resource at home to rely on or have those extra tutors to rely on. We, I have to say, I have to be able to provide an avenue for them to pursue. And that avenue could be scheduling time with me. That avenue could be looking at the, this text. I have a stack of textbook at the back of my book. I mean, in my room, maybe having them review that is an avenue. Maybe using online resources is an avenue. Maybe helping them organize peer study groups is an avenue. But we have a problem. If what we're doing now isn't working, we have to change what we're doing. So let's find a way for you and I to figure out what we can change to make this productive. And for some students, that will be coming to class, paying attention, asking questions, and thinking about it on their own, which I think is kind of the, the default assumptive model. Uh, but because that's not going to work from everyone, I need to figure out a way to get those students a track that can work for them. Mm -hmm. So thanks for writing, Olivia. I really appreciated you pushing us to think further on that. Yeah. Uh, next from our grab bag is another listener response from uh, from Colin, who posted on episode 032, uh, which is also our feedback episode. Uh, but this spot was talking about the complexities of implementing growth mindset um, initiatives in a building. And he had a comment, and he had a couple of things for us to consider. Because he pointed out, that authenticity is essential for anybody who's trying to lead. You've got to be an authentic representation of what you're trying to do, of the priorities you're trying to espouse, and uh, the culture that you're trying to advance in your building. And I've just, so far, we are in agreement. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. He's, he's, he makes a good statement here. When the culture contains within it the narrative that the leadership is disingenuous, right off the bat, you're dealing with a mindset that rejects the organization and the leadership in it. So if they, do, if they don't believe that you believe it, they won't believe you and you won't go get anywhere. So he makes two suggestions and these are interpersonal behaviors, which makes sense. Our job is interpersonal psychology. Ultimately, uh, one of his suggestions is look at the people you're trying to lead. I guess there's two interpretations of that. The, the first thing that comes to me, especially when I think about uh, representation issues is if there's somebody standing over a group of people and that person does not look like the group of people they're standing over, we have a problem. And that absolutely exists in, edu in education as far as gender representation oh, and true. racial representation in administration and teachers and in students. And that's all true. Um, I can't control the identities that I hold, but that is something I need to think about as I engage in attempts to try and lead is, is how well do I represent the folks I'm trying to lead? How well am I engaging them to be leaders also? That's something that I need to think about. Uh, and we, I think we have to look at this at an organizational level. It, we have to look at, like, I can't, you're like you said, I can't change my identities. I can't do that. I do identify one way and that is me. And I get to declare it and own it. And I do. 
Um, and, but I have students that do not identify in the same ways that I identify, and I can't change that. Uh, so there's two ways for me to address this tension. One, acknowledge that our we are a faculty, and our as a faculty, we can attempt to look like our students. And if we are leaders that are crafting a faculty, making mindful decisions about doing that is a way that we can uh, address this tension. The second thing is that something that I can do in my classroom is build a classroom identity. I can build a culture in my classroom where we are fourth period and all of us are fourth period. And this is what it means to be a for my fourth period, our, our fourth period class. And we do this together. And how, how are you helping us be this fourth period class? How is each student contributing to this fourth period class and our identity as a fourth period class? That is something that I can do. Well, and so, and then there's another uh, broader interpretation of that sentence that is actually where I've spent more of my time thinking is the more abstract nature of if I'm trying to lead teachers and I, Michael Ralph, am, I am trying to lead teachers. That's the truth about how I approach my professional practice. I need to be a teacher and I need to be the kind of teacher that I am trying to help others be also. So if I'm saying, you all need to be reflective in your practice, but then I am unwilling to reflect on my own practice. That is going to make me an ineffective leader. Um, so if you all need to be educators in this way, but I don't approach education that way, that's a problem that's going to undermine my initiatives and make me ineffective as a leader. And, uh, and so I think about that a lot, actually, so ever since I've left the classroom, is if I'm going to work with teachers, I need to be a teacher. I have a classroom, but it's not the same kind of classroom as a K-12 classroom that I used to have. And so what does that mean for how I can continue to have connections with folks who are K-12 classroom teachers? And how can I continue to be mindful of my position as more time passes between the last time I was in a K-12 classroom teaching? I need to be mindful of that. And so the next, the last thing that Colin points out uh, is to ensure that your hand gestures initiate before your statements if it is not possible to look like the folks you're trying to lead. And uh, that's, that requires some interpretation also. Um, is I took that to be more of a, a euphemism for I need to be doing the things before I tell people to do the things is sort of how I read that. So if I'm going to say, hey, everybody, you need to go out of your way to give each other positive affirmations of your practice. And so you need to be writing each other notes. I need to have been doing that for a while with no fanfare. Like yeah. I need to be able to say that and have murmurs in the room be like, oh yeah, he wrote me a note last month. Oh yeah, he wrote me a note a couple months ago. Oh yeah, we had a conversation last week about how he noticed I did a thing. And and so, yeah, all right, we should all be doing that. As opposed to you all should write notes, even though I can't find the time to write notes. Uh, that's how I interpreted that comment was you need to be doing the things well before you tell other people to do the things. Walk the walk before you talk the talk. That's how I interpreted that. I can't disagree with that at all. And if there's more, if there's more psychology citations about moving your body before making noise, I would like to read them. Yeah. So, uh, Colin, let us know how we did interpreting your <laughs> comment because we apparently we had we don't know what we were reading. Yeah, that was that was good. But thank you for your feedback. We really appreciate you letting us know uh, what comes to your mind as you join the conversation. We're in this together.
how was the beer? Uh, this is a great brown. I love oatmeal beers and I love browns. And this is both of those things. Uh, I've, I've been a slower drinker this month than I usually am. So I still have a lot more left. No, than yeah, I, do. I just saved the last dregs for this last taste. Yeah, but I, I really like it. I really like it. I have a tendency not to like oatmeals. I have a tendency to tolerate browns. I don't really detect the oatmeal in this. Mm -hmm. And this is a fine brown. Super smooth. Super light. Um, but it tastes nice and dark. Um, yeah, it's got that like nutty sort of earthy qualities mm -hmm. in the back half of the of the palate that I, I really like. I really like that. Uh, but it's it, I just want to drink it real fast. And so I did. You sure did. <laughs> you sure did. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan. I I would drink it again. If I see this on the shelf, I might buy it in the future. We will look for more four hands too. Yeah, from St. Louis. I dig uh I dig drinking stuff that's just down I-70, so that's cool. Yeah. So well that done. Is cool. Well done, y'all. This month was a lot of fun because we had a chance to hear from a bunch of you. So we really appreciate that. So keep it coming. If you have more comments or more suggestions or more papers you want us to read, uh, I really like getting to do things that I know matter to or connect with you folks who are listening out there. So thank you for that. Keep it coming. If you want to reach out on social media, you can email us or leave a comment on our website, twopintplc.com. Uh, and we will do our best to represent all of it here on the show because this is better with all of you. As we pursue growth, Discuss research and struggle well.